Welcome to a beautiful day in the Swamp Ward. Down a gentle slope from here is the Cataraqui River, on its way to meet Lake Ontario. A causeway crosses the river, connecting Kingston to the east. And the hum of cars on the causeway is a sound that people who live here know well. Hot summer nights, brisk winter mornings, it's always there. In six episodes, this podcast series introduces you to the Swamp Ward through its sounds and its voices. I've spent a lot of time talking with people about this place, and I want to share with you what makes it special, what makes it ordinary, what makes it real. Swamp Ward, yeah. It was like another universe. We used to go and raise proper Hellas kids in there. A lot of stuff like that went on back then. This was years and years ago. I never changed my mind what we did at the time. I knew we were in the swamp. It was swamp. So then we got nicknamed Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. What's a swamp ward or always a swamp ward? I'm Laura Murray, and you're listening to Stories of the Swamp Ward from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Today, let us take you down to the Inner Harbour. There always were little puddles and swamps in here where we could skate early. But the oil used to drip down into this one swamp area. And we could go down and dip, and the cattails, you know, from the wood, we could dip that into the, into the oil-soaked pond, the leaks from the tanks. But one day we came down, Brother Jack, Alec Reynolds, Jack Stanton, myself, we came down, soaked these cattails, uh, and poor Jack Stanton, the oil dripped down his wrist. When he set fire to it, of course, reflex action, threw it in and ended up in the marsh. We knew what would happen. A conflagration, we never, we up over the bank, the hundred mile dashes I think were made in record time. Uh, Alec Reynolds hit the end of his house. He said, Mother, the end of the world's coming. He couldn't even find his own door. Our doors were locked because Mother was away. My brother Jack, he climbed through the front window of the house, our house, I had my beautiful Ferris wheel made of Tinker Toys, and he crashed through that one and out the back door, running out the back door. Well, I stayed looking at this fire. I I don't know how old it was. I might have been 10, I might have been 8. I don't know. But in any case, then the fire engines come along. All the culprits have scattered. Mother, when she heard the fire alarm and where the fire was, she offered home in a taxi... And all she said, okay, who did it? My God, that was some blaze. But they came in down with their trucks and put that fire out in no time. That story comes from the 1930s. It's a good one. When Stuart tells it to kids and their parents today, it sure gets a lot of gasps of amazement. But let's get a sense of the bigger picture. For Indigenous people through the centuries, the mouth of the Cataraqui River was a good place to fish, to gather, to trade. It's shallow and marshy, it's nicely sheltered from the constant winds of Lake Ontario. When the British moved in, after the American Revolution, they started to fill in the swamps, which they found unattractive, unproductive. Later, the railroads used cinders and other waste to create a whole new west shore of the river. On that land, industries grew. For about a hundred years, till the late 1960s, the harbour was home to tanneries, mills, shipbuilding, warehouses, and storage and distribution of coal, oil, and lumber. 
It was a dangerous, noisy, polluted place. In other words, a fabulous place for kids. You would uh, skate on the river, play hockey on the river, skate from the bridge with our window blinds, using the sails down to Belle Island, struggle back in the wind, or the tar pond. Tar pond is a residue, place for residue, from the old gas works, tar ponds as we name them. I remember skating on that at an early age and because the tar retained a certain amount of heat, the ice didn't always form evenly across the top. My skate went through one skate in this gucky mess all over the skate. I tried vainly to get it off. Well, I have a funny story for you about the railway tracks here because, as I said, we always used to play around the trains. Something you shouldn't do, but we did it. Uh, we'd climb up on cars, we'd go in the boxcars. I remember there were these open um, hopper cars. A bunch of them were parked along here one day, and I remember uh, sometimes the kids would get up and climb down inside and do goofy stuff and just basically do what kids do. And I still remember climbing up one of these things, putting my hands like this, holding my face up and looking in, and there it had been filled with awful from the, uh, you know, scrapings from the hides, organs and all sorts of stuff. It was absolutely crawling with flies. And I put my hands into it and put my nose on the edge of some of this stuff. And oh my God, <laughs> I didn't do that again. There was adventure and there was contemplation. I remember as a young girl, I lived on Rackham Road in Montreal Street. And I was skipping outside when they were building the Rosen Tanks that were at the end of the street where um, Rito Crest is now. So you could see them from... Oh, yeah. Just they were straight at the bottom of the Yeah, well, I used to be able to see the water, and that's how I could tell the weather. If it was going to rain, you could see whitecaps, and you'd know it was going to rain soon, so you'd go in the house. But um, then they built them, and I thought, oh, I'll never see my beautiful water again. And I was there the day they tore them down, and it was a very happy day for me. And then they built Rita Crest. (laughs) I really liked it when you could see the water. (laughs) This side of Princess Street was what we passed through to get to the dump, the city dump. And I would travel with my dad in the truck to leave things amongst the fog of seagulls that that ha- inhabited uh, city, the city dump at that time and it was vast. The dump was mountains and mountains which was Belle Island but it's a pretty impressive thing to do and it felt like I was driving away like kind of even out of town at that time. But in walking around here in what is now called the uh, Douglas Flora Park that to me was totally fascinating because it was as my memory it was it was a marsh and uh, a lot of tall grasses and uh, people sleeping under tins and cardboard boxes and uh, and it was like a village it was like a little village it felt remote from Kingston uh, and it was only it was only a few blocks away Kids worked in the harbor area too, foraging coal from between the tracks or bananas from beside the National Grocers Building, selling scrap metal, bottles and paper, 
delivering messages and lunches. When they reach their teens, they might face one of life's first major tests there at their first job. In my dad's generation, one of his first jobs that he ever had was with um, Harry Rosen, which is Rosen Fuels, of course. And at and, uh, that particular time, dad had just started out in business, and he um, Rosen's called him and asked him if he'd come down and put the store hours uh, for him on the window at the present location that's still on Cataraqui Street. Uh, at that time, dad didn't have a vehicle, so he decided that he'd have to take the bicycle down there so he packed up what we call a grip with our brushes and paints and stuff like that in it and off he goes down to Rosen's. Uh, Mr. Rosen told him what he wanted on the window and that and dad proceeded to put it on there and then I called uh, Mr. Rosen, Harry out and said I'm done the job and oh that's good and how much do I owe you? And he said seven dollars. And uh, Mr. Rosen uh, kind of said to him, seven dollars? Now, you haven't been here that long to warrant paying seven dollars for the, that window. It didn't take you any time. And of course, my dad replied to him, well, just a minute. Somebody's got to pay for my time to come down here and my equipment and brushes. And when I go back, I have to put everything away. And of course, Harry said, seven dollars for just that work and that. And dad, of course, was uh, had a lot of pride in that and somebody questioned what the price was so he bent down and uh, took some turpentine is what we used at that time and took a rag and proceeded and just wiped it off the window and he said now get somebody else and uh, Harry said oh no 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 don't don't do that put it back on and I'll give you double the price and uh, I always remember dad saying I took it England's lumberyard, helping to portion and carry wood, empty the boxcars. I was taught what a man was very, very soon after starting to work there, because one of the jobs was, as I said, wheeling cement, they were building cement walls, retaining walls, and to do it, you had a wheelbarrow full of cement. Not bad for weight, so I was a big guy back then. But you had to wheel it across a set of planks to get to where you dumped it in, wet cement. And uh, I tipped and lost some of the load. And the guy foreman, whatever, the boss, straw boss, saw this. After I'd finished coming back to get a refill, he said, that's a man's job. Well, I'm trying. He said, this is a man with that. He, opened up his shirt, took a handful of chest hair, ripped them out. That's a man. <laughs> this boss's antics were memorable, but Mike Tereski really knew already what a man was from watching his dad. The tannery was there forever, it seemed. Dad worked there and most of the others in the area worked there for the, the big wage of 25 cents an hour. You think about that? trying to maintain a home on that. It was tough. It was tough. Um, the way they removed the hair from the hides and tan the hides involved serious chemicals like uh, sulfuric acid, caustic soda. That's why that area today is called Brownfield or designated as Brownfield is because of the supersaturation of what you have. You had all of the animal 
uh, fats and hair and so on. Plus, you had all the acids and bases in it, the strong bases. It's uh, kind of a walking time bomb. I'm, I'm sure it may it by now be neutralized, but it's hard to say. Most of those people were uh, East European background. A few Irish in there, a few English, but not many. The, the, uh, the British English, called Canadian English, were usually the foremen in the, and above. And all the uh, heavy-duty workers were, were the uh, East Europeans. Another major place of employment was the woolen mill. Built in 1882 as a cotton mill, it reopened as Heald Brothers Woolen Mill in 1931. When I was a kid, there were, you could hear whistles, but uh, morning, noon, uh, night, it was announcing the shift changes. The whistle would go at whatever, 7.30 or something, announcing it was time for work. I used to see people, if you ever seen the movie Norma Ray, it was like that, you know, it had these shift changes, all these women with their kerchiefs on, and uh, primarily women, with lunch buckets under their arms, walking down the street. And, you know, and when the, when the whistle blasted at noon, they'd all, go, I guess, stop for lunch, and 20 minutes later, or whatever, it'd blast again. And same thing in the evenings at like 4.30 or 5 o'clock. When I was a kid, I'd come along here, and these windows, you could stand here, and um, if you're here, you can, probably, you can visualize this. Uh, the, the slat wooden floors were, had lots of oil on them, so if you've ever uh, smelled, in fact, you can still smell it in the building, I think, uh, kind of an oily smell that comes up off the floors, and roll upon roll upon roll upon roll upon roll of these loom, big loom machines going clickety-clack, 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 click. And you'd stand here and say, hey, got any pop bottles? <laughs> and the people would come over and give us pop bottles, and then we'd run off up the store to buy uh, candies with them. But The girls that worked here were... They used to say the best dressed girls in town. You know, they really uh, worked hard and they would go to work and they would all have their hair done up in pin curls and they'd have a scarf tied over their hair. And then when they finished work, off come the scarf and they'd pop out all these bottle pins and brush their hair and walk, walk out in the street and they looked like a million dollars, you know. <laughs> Not like the poor girls that worked at the tile works. They come out and they'd look like ghosts. They'd be covered in tile dust. There was a bolt of material came over, like a almost like a, a desk lifting up, or a or a well, an easel, and the the bolt of material went behind. Usually, the men brought it in or two ladies, and then you started on it, wrong, right side out, and then it came over, and if you saw a slough or a, a piece of thread sticking up, you had to push it, get hold of it with these burlers, and push it through. Then you would turn, do all that, yards of material, and smooth it out. Then you'd turn it over and make sure it was straight, like there was no threads coming through from the other side. 
They called it invisible mending. It wasn't hard. I think it was just you had to be up real early with about six o'clock to get it. I think it started about seven and then finished at five. And sometimes we sat outside, there was a great big log. We sat outside and ate out there by the river, took your lunch. Maybe a ham sandwich, you'd had ham sliced. Or, uh, I, I think we had sometimes had peanut butter and banana. But I used to eat packet lunch when my sister came to visit. She didn't live that far away, but when she came, she would say, I'll pack your lunch, and it seems so good just to have your lunch packed. Uh, Doris Garnett, and she encouraged me to take the DuPont job. She, I'm pretty sure she knew the mill was quitting, because I don't think it lasted much longer after I left. Well, the mill did close in 1966, but that wasn't the end of its life. Before long, it attracted various small businesses who appreciated cheap rent and tolerated drafts. This was early 80s, and I had a t-shirt painting business, and we rented a, essentially a loft office space, and I had, uh, I think it was about five employees who hand-painted t-shirts and sweatshirts and we sold them to wholesale to about 125 retail stores across the country. And, and at the time, there was a few office tenants and they, were ten, they tended to be craft businesses that wanted, that needed sort of large space, large inexpensive space. And the building was half empty, um, but it, it had this interesting kind of cult feel that, that everyone could feel something was happening in the woolen mill. The owner was struggling trying to make the building viable. And I think eventually he sold it to the Dornicamps, who are the current owner, who had a lot deeper resources, uh, renovated to a higher standard and was able to attract better uh, office tenants. But that was, at the time, when the Willow Mill was first converted into office space, it was too far north. People thought it was too far away. And now, now no one thinks of that at all. So it's interesting how the the uh, industrial areas have, have been transformed. I was an editor for the business keeper at the woolen mill when the woolen mill was just opening up for business. And so I was editing it and the Wolf Island Bakery was on the ground floor. And down a little ways away from where the business keeper, there were a lot of little small businesses to giving them a start, which was just a lovely thing. And there was a, a shop called the Doll House. It had beautiful dolls and all kinds of things. She, she loved dolls and she had a lot of fun. Well. The, the oldest daughter of the Wolf Island people, who was about 11. And when she, whenever school was not on, she would waitress. There was one doll that she really, really wanted from the dollhouse. And those dolls were real pricey, sent over from England and all. And this woman had worked out a plan where she would give her so much every time. So everybody knew this, so we were all tipping her real heavy to get the doll. And finally the day came, and she had enough money to give the woman. And the woman who owned the doll shop, was so happy about this. So I kind of followed them upstairs. Uh, well, she said, let's go get the doll. The doll had been sitting on the shelf. Uh, and so she pulled down the shades and she put closed for business on the sign. And she and the little girl went in. And I peeked in. 
and she'd set up a tea party. She and the doll, they were sitting on the floor having a tea party with the doll sitting there. It just was a lovely premise. Just great, the whole thing was. And the fact that she would want to play dolls with this. I mean, this, this was the big day. What would you do with somebody who'd paid that? Said, well, of course you'd have a doll party. Yes, it was so great. I thought, what a lovely thing that was. But those, I did want to tell you about the woolen mill because it was such a wonderful, uh, all these young, young hopeful people starting out with, with their businesses and to see how they were going to go. The National Grocers Building, next door to the Woolen Mill, was also being transformed. But surely the most incredible transformation was when the dump became a golf course. It's a peninsula. It's an old marsh that ends in a peninsula. In the 1950s, some bright light decided to build a garbage dump on top of it to serve the city. So 50s to 70s, there was a garbage dump there. And it was closed in the mid-1970s, and the city decided to turn this huge piece of filled-in marshland into a golf course. I was a greenskeeper, so uh, cutting the greens and, you know, maintaining them, well, it was... Pretty interesting down there too. They built that great big hill down there. And the purpose of that was to uh, have a ski hill there. But little did they know that the methane gas (laughs) would melt all the snow. (laughs) And I remember when they were piling that garbage, they would pile so much garbage and then they would put earth over top of that. And uh, as soon as they'd go to put the earth down, the rats would start. Hundreds and hundreds of them come running out of there, down on the golf course. We'd have carts running over them, whacking them with shovels. They couldn't build anything on that site because of the settling all the time. Like every day you might see a fridge sticking up a corner of a fridge because of the settling or that's why they call it the dump (laughs) even today where do you golf down at the dump you met a lot of people just in the working class because that's what they could afford to do the older guys that's all they wanted to do was play their nine holes and go home but uh, a lot of them bitched and complained and now you think Come on, buddy. You don't have that many years left in your life. Just enjoy your game and forget about the bitching. We know there's shit out there, there's tires out there, there's this and that. But that's the price you pay for playing here. So get over it. Bell Park is a very large piece of land on the waterfront that... Uh, right now is a golf course that's surrounded by wilderness. It's uh, probably the wildest piece of land in the center of the city on the Cataraque River. It's very, very beautiful. It's very unusual to have that kind of land um, so central in a city, so close to the downtown, where you can actually feel a little bit lost in the woods, where you can actually 
walk under a very close tree canopy where you can have plants actually brush up against your legs. There's all sorts of wildlife. There's a pair of osprey that comes back every year. Migrating birds stop in the bay off the side. There's deers, there's coyotes, all sorts of river creatures and fish. And a really interesting intersection of people who find themselves using that piece of land for all sorts of reasons without conflict, really, over the years. People using the space to play golf, to walk their dogs, to go skiing, to make weird little art projects in the woods. Some of the indigenous people go and do ceremonies on the island. I've come across children building forts in the woods. Um, there's homeless people. There's all sorts of stuff happening there in a fairly organic community. One of the things I really like about it is the narrative that you see. Here's the landscape kind of taking over from this big, huge human error of building a garbage dump on top of a piece of marshland. There's going to be effects and implications of that for generations, right? But you see the transformation of this industrial site into a number of different ecosystems on the site. You know, this isn't regenerating to what it was before, right? You're seeing how invasive species move. You're seeing what invasive species come through, but then you're seeing them kind of get crowded out by other invasive species and, and it changes again. And you also see what a non-manicured urban space can look like. And that's something that we don't see enough, I think. So here we stand. 200 years or so after humans started altering this landscape. We're haunted by the industrial past of this area, but we're also starting to be aware of how its natural past is still with us, or with us again. Thanks so much for listening to Stories of the Swamp Ward from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Stories of the Swamp Ward is produced by me, Laura Murray, with audio production and story consulting by the remarkable and industrious Phil Lichty. Jeff Elliott did the final mixing and mastering. Music is by Sam Allison. Today, you heard the voices of Mary Louise Adams, Anne-Marie Blaney-Clark, Stuart Crawford, Rose DeShaw, Bruce Downey, Bob Frey, Gary Lavalle, Evelyn Mitchell, Mike Tereski and Rod White. Interviews were conducted by Laura Murray and Scott Rutherford. Other assistants along the way came from Ronan Goldfarb, Justine Hobbs, Tash Carroll, Lauren Luchensky, and Ella Mackay Singh. Mary Farrar first drew my attention to the history of this part of Kingston, and her energy and curiosity have propelled me a long way. Hugh Gale, Bruce Warmington, and John Duercott were great sources of information about the area as well. What we didn't learn from real live people, we learned from the Queen's University Archives and the Kingston Frontenac Public Library. We're very grateful to Queen's University and the City of Kingston Heritage Fund for financial support. Thanks also to the Friends of Kingston Inner Harbour and CFRC, Queen's Campus Radio 101.9, our partners in these podcasts. If you want to know more about this place, check out swampwardhistory.com, the website of the Swampward and Inner Harbour History Project. There's even a blog post just for this episode at swampwardhistory.com slash inner harbor now and then. Or if you're in the area, 
You might want to take a walk through the Inner Harbor, where there are no train tracks to trip on anymore. Download the Kingston Walking Tours app from the Play Store or the App Store, it's free, and choose Life and Labour in the Inner Harbour. You'll hear lots of info about the Indigenous and Industrial Paths of this place, with pictures and maps. Et si vous voulez, vous pouvez l'écouter en français. All right, so what's coming next? Well, the next episode, one of my favourites, is about how World War II was lived in the Swamp Ward. Kingston being a marshalling area, They'd always come through and then head out overseas or wherever they were going. And the outer station, being the railroad station, was on the way. So we'd see all this movement of people and, and soldiers. It really brings that experience into close human focus. It's not just for war buffs. I hope you'll listen to it.